Aloha, everyone, and welcome to Hawaii Life's Procast. My name is Matt Beal. I am guest hosting this edition of the Procast, as this is a special Worth Shop series edition. And I am thrilled today to welcome one of our C-suite presenters uh, to the podcast. And uh, I know that this is one of those conversations like the ones I've done before where we can just go on forever. But without further ado, I'm going to welcome Paul Boonsma from Leading Real Estate Companies of the World and Luxury Portfolio International. Paul, you're the COO of Leading Real Estate Companies of the World. But first, prior to that, you were the or is it the president or what what was your yep. title with luxury portfolio well when i when i started i wasn't the president in fact that's kind of a funny story um i came on board as executive vice president and uh we didn't have a president but i don't think they wanted to appoint me that until we made sure the program was moving forward and after a meeting in europe um the europeans uh who are a little bit more involved in titles than we are here in america <laughs> uh, made the comment. They said, so if you have the executive or vice president, why isn't the president here at the meeting? And <laughs> they realized, like, Paul better become. So I actually got a promotion uh, in the flight on the way home. And I've been president so, since that time. <laughs> so for those who, who don't know, I mean, I know, a, you know, a lot of us who are listening are, are more than familiar with you know, leading real estate companies of the world and then luxury portfolio international. But for those who don't know, can you kind of give us the, the sort of 50,000-foot overview on what these two organizations are and, and kind of the interplay between them? Absolutely. So we're an organization that really focuses on um, linking quality brokers together around the world, um, sharing a number of different services that we offer to them, almost in the form of that a franchise would, with the big difference being that we want them to retain their own brand. We believe in having brokers be independent and authentic to their community. Um, but what we also do is connect them because we also think there's a huge synergy where they can send business uh, to one another. So that's a big part of our value proposition. But the key there is to have very high-quality brokers. So if you have a client that you've worked with for years, you don't want them to go somewhere else in the country or in the world and not have an experience that you feel is going to reflect very good on you. So that's really why we've we've put so many uh, different systems in place to make sure that those relationships are held true. And basically, when, when you refer somebody through on our, our network, they're treated almost like a VIP um, because obviously we want to do that, but we also track the metrics behind it. And if you don't treat somebody well, it's a black eye in your record, and you're going to have right. to live with that bad statistic for a while. So it's a little bit of a self-policing um, program. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's what we do, and we, we're pleased we're in over 60 countries now uh, with top brokers in almost every major market around the world uh, with expansion uh, continuing heavily now in Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, we've been around uh, for just over 50 years in one form or another. Wow. Uh, Luxury Portfolio was born uh, about just over 10 years ago, and a lot of the brokers that we had in our uh, leading RE program um, also were affiliated with the Sotheby Auction House. And when the auction house sold off their real estate division and it became a franchise, a lot of our members did not want to franchise. They wanted to remain true to their brand. Um, you know, Obviously, many times it was the owner's name on the door, or it was certainly a name on the door that the owner had chosen. 
So to give that up and, and franchise uh, just didn't seem like something that was going to be that advantageous. They were already strong market players. So paying a franchise uh, to somehow add more value didn't really fit into the value proposition. And Luxury Portfolio was born to deliver really a lot of the value that the auction house had um, other than the brand. So it's connecting people. It's giving them research, education, uh, websites, um, advertise, collective advertising programs, um, conferences. Uh, again, it's a lot of the things that they were used to having, again, but with our allegiance to the fact that they're independent, we want them to remain independent. Um, and our most recent surveys actually show that uh, affluent consumers prefer dealing with a local, locally branded uh, boutique firm. Um, or even if they're not boutique, they see them as boutique because they're not a, a national franchise. Interesting. Hey, you know, I, I don't know if you know this story, but my, uh, you know, just sort of full circle back to the Worth shop, uh, the first luxury portfolio event that I attended, I, I want to say it was as early as 2009, uh, because I remember we had just, it might have been 2010, but we had just sort of done the acquisition of, of Coa Properties and, and Neil Norman, and he he was pretty adamant that we just it was just a default sort of a no-brainer like you you have to join leading real estate companies of the world and you have to be in luxury portfolios like sort of period um and, and i prior to that wasn't very familiar with it ex except for loosely and i probably had the same sort of arrogance that i think you know other members might have had when when you first engaged with them and it was like okay well where do i sign up and it's like no it's not really how it works like we went through a, a pretty arduous uh vetting process that you you're committed to that, you know, really only working with the top broker. So anyway, fast forward, we get through it, we join, we're in, and we go to, I honestly don't remember where the conference was that year, but uh, I was so struck by, yeah, I think it was James Taylor's presentation. Is the Harrison Group? I forget the name of his oh, company. Yeah, he was, yep, yep. Yep, and he was, he was sharing his book, Selling to the New Elite, and it was so timely, and it was one of those light bulb moments at that you know I would I'd call it like the two percent moment where you know most conferences are kind of like you know, you're you're falling asleep or you're browsing the web or something, and then you get that one speaker or that one takeaway that just radically changes your career, and then also kind of turns you into an evangelist that you just you have to share this information with you know your colleagues and your clients and everyone around you and. So, you know, I bought probably 10 of those books, uh, shared them with everyone in my company and thought, okay, I've got to get this guy to Hawaii. And that originally was the seed that, you know, for better or worse, planted the, the workshop. It was like, okay, how do we get this kind of quality and this conversation to Hawaii? And I could never end up getting him with the schedule and all that. So, you know, we started with a half day in Kona in 2010, but it was that – you know, he was really the impetus for like firing up this whole thing. So you get to take some credit for uh, the growth <laughs> for the growth of Worthstop, like better or worse. Well, we're thrilled about that, and I and I do. Um, you know, Jim passed away uh, earlier this year, and it was a huge oh, loss for us. Yeah, huge loss for us. And he and I met um, almost at the beginning of uh, Luxury Portfolio when it was starting. And we and and they had not previously been working in the luxury uh, real estate space, and uh, it was a great love of his personally. Uh, so it worked out to be a very long uh, relationship that we have had with them and, and still have with them to this day. 
um, with the, the existing the firm that is still there. Um, he, but I think, go ahead. Well, I was going to say he definitely fell into the category of that sort of like brilliant, lovable curmudgeons that you know that they were so informed. And I put you know Bob Hoffman and Mark Davison and those kinds of people into that category of just so well informed and really could could walk their talk uh, with with just hard data. I mean, and, and it was like at the time we were just coming out of the recession, which I know radically changed how we all you know do business. But it, he was so sort of up to speed on the impact that the recession had on the luxury space, and and not just you know the financial implications, but also the, the generational change that was going on at the same time. And it was just like, you know, I was so thirsty for that information because he was articulating what we could kind of see in the marketplace but didn't really have the words for. And so when we, you know, when when it was just there all spelled out, it was like really brilliant. And it gave us language to go out and take it to our you know clients and to our colleagues. And it, it I, you know, frankly, had a, had a, a brilliant impact on our company, not just, you know, the, the workshop. Good. I think the probably one of the areas that we're a little different um, at Luxury Portfolio is because we're already working with companies such as Hawaii Life uh, and many others that are already leaders in their market, we, we don't feel it's our job to educate them on, on what they need to do uh, to be successful. So what we try to do is to glean other insights, which is where the ball is going and try to find out um, what's in the consumer's head, what's that affluent consumer thinking about, what's their experience in other uh, luxury spaces, uh, and the ones that we see frequently affecting are travel, uh, hospitality, uh, hotels, um, dining out, um, and those three really have a lot to do with their perception of their lifestyle and what they expect and what they expect in the home that they live in. So what we've tried to do is find out what are their expectations, what are their experiences, and then how does that translate into what are they thinking about for the future of real estate? And, you know, as recently as our, our report that came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were very pleased to see uh, that a third of them are planning to purchase in the next three years. Um, and, you know, going to a transaction, which was really nice because I think especially, you know, based on where we are with the election, uh, with a lot of other things going on, terrorism, all these things, we have seen a little bit of softening in some markets. Um, there just hasn't been the, uh, the, the feeling of any urgency. And the fact that they're, that that may be, we feel probably more short-lived than we anticipated, that they really are still committed to real estate. They're still committed to the lifestyle enhancement that a home can provide. Um, but I think the difference being that we try to figure out where what, what's in their head today so that we can plan for the next day. Do you think when you say that they're, they're about to, you know, they're considering a purchase uh, or that a third of them are, is that across the board as sort of primary residences or is it is it a second third home stuff as well and the reason i ask is that it occurs to me and this is one of the things that i think uh, certainly you know leading re and luxury portfolio have provided is the context of being able to interact with you know these other brokers from around the country but it occurs to me that the the sort of second home, the real tried and true second home markets, you know, the ski communities, the the resort communities, they never really got the the rush of the recovery. And it was almost like there was such a hangover 
and such a, a, a emotional sort of psychic trauma from the recession that even though you know those those primary markets, San Francisco, all all up and down the, the West Coast, and, and probably elsewhere in the country, really got heated quickly and were are still quite aggressive, and you kind of had to buy because you're going to get sort of shoved out. But that that uh, safety or that aggression never really translated into the second home market or the resort communities. I don't know if that's been your experience, but it, it certainly has been ours. And I see it in other markets. Do you think that's going to change, or do you think it's 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 sort of sort of slowly ramping into it? Well, it's interesting. You're you're exactly right, and it was and that was true across many of the resort markets. Um, I think there are a couple reasons for it. One thing is that pre-recession, a lot of those markets had become quite overheated, and they also uh, started to see prices go up, and the product also getting considerably larger. Um, ski communities specifically um, had many properties that were now, uh, uh, you know, going in excess of 10 million, and in oftentimes pushing 15, 20 million. Um, and that's a lot of house for a second right. home. And so I think there was one thing that changed uh, post-crisis, uh, which is um, a lot of people had built these. A lot of They were baby boomers who had built them with the idea this was going to become a family compound where everybody would come year in and year out. And it was a wonderful way to see grandchildren and children and all that sort of thing. And what they found, a lot of these larger homes, that the, the – family doesn't really want to do that every year. They have other choices. They may want to go uh, somewhere in the Caribbean one year. They may want to go to Mexico. They may, you know, a warmer climate or the, the vice versa, the places in the Caribbean, they may want to go skiing one year. So the, going to the same place is not necessarily what they want to do. They want to have a different experience. So I think that was part of it. The other thing was we saw that the uh, the younger consumer is looking, because um, a lot of those are our buyers right now, um, they're not necessarily sure they want to commit to a second home uh, for those same reasons, which is we may want to go to another place each year. So buying a place in this resort destination is not necessarily great. So they kind of got hit on both ends. On the, on the, on the high price side, it was the, you know, the family um, retreat um, was no longer quite in vogue because of the younger folks. And the younger folks didn't even want to buy a small place uh, because they wanted a little more freedom. Um, so I do think the the resort markets have been a little slower to come back. Um, I think they stabilized, but they they also were the ones that went in, at least uh, I can think of a number, number of them, they really got frenetic when the the, mar the markets got hot. They went up extremely right, right. high. Yeah, I always say, I, I think it was, you know, it was safe to assume that, you know, whatever twenty, thirty percent appreciation year over year was not sustainable. Uh, but, but I don't think any of us quite expected that the, the credit would just kind of evaporate. Um, right. And I think I think you're exactly right. And then I think what's worse is that, you know, Q whatever pick a pick a time for the bottom of the trough. But really, almost effectively since then, there's been almost zero regular construction, regular. A trickle in of, of new product, and you know there's some sort of closed developer stuff, but there's not the average sort of like oh honey let's build a house, and so what you end up with is even in those communities which for the most part have a historically uh, 
more frequent turn, you know, because because the, the the scenario you described where it's like the dream house and the grandkids are going to come and we'll all spend time here and and then third or fourth year you realize you know it's kind of a pain for the grandkids to come and they don't really spend that much time here and so the, the circumstances change but these are people that you know they're it's not like they're taking a major impact if they decide, hey, let's sell it. So the frequency of turn happens a little faster, and, and those, those the churn in those communities is a little more frequent. Well, when you interrupt that with almost zero product because the cost of building went up or no one had any money to build and the whole world of thinking about, you know, of, of lending and thinking about going through the relatively challenging process of building a second home at a distant location, all of that changed. So now we're in this scenario where not only do we have the generational you know constraints that you're referencing and and these you know the, the changes that have come out of the recession we also have like zero inventory so it's like right. it's sort of a triple whammy in a, in a way yeah and yeah and getting back to um you know we asked about our report the good news is that you are correct that that is spread out uh, we didn't release it that way just for clarity and trying to keep things uh, concise. But the younger the consumer, the more interest there is now in a second home, third home property. Um, some of the older consumers are considering uh, selling and downsizing. Um, so it's not altogether different from the general population, just at higher, higher home prices. Um, but there's definitely an interest in second homes again. To your point on that, pre-recession, we were also looking at the boomers were still much more in control. So a lot of the boomers between 2000 and 2006 had enormous um, uh, wealth creation, and many of them did go and build uh, what was their dream home. Um, the only difference is that now post-recession, uh, what they found is that the younger consumer doesn't necessarily have the same dream. So a lot of those larger properties in some markets did languish a little bit. But up until that time, we didn't see that many people building such um, sizable, significant properties in resort markets for such a small period of time to use them. And that's really what happened between 2000 and 2006. Um, which is, and now, yeah, go ahead. It's almost like it's like a fashion issue too, right? Which is, I mean, that's just one, one item on a long list of things that are sort of in the real estate fashion world. But I... I you know, you you said earlier, you were kind of going, uh, you were talking about the, the variety of influences and how luxury portfolio wants to sort of, you know, provide the context and educate the members about these these influences and how they, what I would call really influence, what I call real estate fashion. It's like it's not just that the size is, you know, people don't build houses that big, but but you know, you, there I can't tell you how many building choices or even just architectural styles that are kind of left over from even the last market run up, even that last, you know, uh, say 2000 to 2006 that just are completely out of favor. And so it's like, one, we haven't been building new stuff and two, the stuff that's there that's even not that old is kind of like so passe. And so you mentioned, you know, these influences of retail and hospitality and restaurants and how they're, they're kind of, uh, really guiding that what I'd call real estate fashion. I, I'd love to hear more about specifically what you see in that. You know, how, what does it translate to and, and to the consumer in terms of what they want? Uh, that, is, is that, 
it is it's an area that I love following and it's kind of one of the areas when I when I got into the space um, it was very interesting to me and I think one of the things that changed I'm going to go back a little farther but I'll jump forward quickly um, but if we look at what what the Four Seasons and the Ritz-Carlton were originally uh, looking like and they were primarily developed in the 80s and a lot of those were were created because of a new um, a new form of money which was syndication which was uh, developers could now build a new hotel and a new office complex and new retail complex bundle it all together and when they got done they could then syndicate it out to investors so money became cheaper and in the 60s and 70s that wasn't really out there. So a lot of things happened in the mid to late 80s. Um, I mean, in 1987, tax laws changed, so it wasn't quite as advantageous. But a lot of projects were built. But what they did was they were reminiscent of what they thought luxury was. So we had the heavy moldings, um, you know, the... the, the um, the Ritz-Carlton's were very, very, very traditional. And as we move forward, um, I think that that has kind of become passe. In the 90s, we kind of took that look, and it evolved into the Mediterranean revival. So in Florida, in many of the desert areas, um, any place where it didn't seem – I mean, you don't, a Mediterranean rival, revival just looks wrong when you have it covered in snow. So the, there are many <laughs> right. parts of our country that didn't get, you know, that tile roof and that Spanish look um, just kind of looks wrong when it's covered in snow. But any place else, Texas, any, any anything in the Sun Belt, that was very popular. And in our most recent uh, magazine, uh, we actually covered um, a Mediterranean revival that's been kind of re reborn. Um, in fact, uh, we call it internally, and no offense to anybody, because nobody can control these things, but it's kind of the dead Mediterranean revival, or what in some places I'll say it's the dead med rev, and, um, because they've <laughs> fallen so far out of fashion. And what happened was Mediterranean revivals, you know, it's kind of like taking a little bit of, um, you know, it, Tuscany and dropping it into a subdivision or into right. a, a, in a community where everything else was colonial or everything else was, you know, something else. But the furnishings were also very heavy. Everything was very dark. There was very tapestry, which was, again, trying to recreate this whole Mediterranean thing. What we've now seen in the current uh, property, they basically painted the entire house white. They put in very contemporary artwork, and they just lightened the whole thing up, got rid of all the, the tapestry draperies and all these things. And they actually gave a Mediterranean revival a new life um, because the, the flow and the space and the, you know, the massing of the higher ceilings and things like that isn't offensive. But it was just the look was, is now suddenly no longer in fashion, as you mentioned. And, and luxury has become much more of a fashion statement over the last 15 to 20 years than ever before. So we see that. We also see, you know, the, the contemporary is now very, very popular. Um, I think almost to an extent I was having a conversation with somebody in Los Angeles uh, just a few weeks ago, and they were saying, you know, we're almost at a saturation point where the, the contemporary that people would look at, and it was a wow because it had these cantilevered, you know, very uh, clean lines and a lot of walls of glass. Um, the wow factor is almost gone because there's so many of them. And you know, everything, everything that's new now has, you know, the, the cantilevered infinity pool. It has all glass. 
um, and all these different things. But now it, the the wow factor is gone because we've seen so many of them. And you know, when when they go out to show properties, it's almost confusing because they all look the same. Um, I'm not I'm not poking fun. They still are uh, many 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 of them are architectural you know masterpieces. But again, right. it's like anything else. We start cycling through it. And um, there'll there'll be something new around the corner. It's it's definitely so. I want to I want to circle back because I, I want to hear what you think is new around the corner. But first, I want to you know file a complaint and say that I it's I wish we had that problem in Hawaii where we had a lack of you know contemporary or modern inventory because we just had almost none uh, except for the mid-century stuff, which is like literally mid-century from you know that's all around Oahu from you know, Ossipoff and these small right. cadre of, you know, architects that, that were, I would call, very forward-thinking. But we just don't have any of that. And so it's 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 kind of a, a it's a point, a source of frustration because we, we were, they're almost skipped in that, that fashion, you know, that sort of architecture fashion trend. And I think just like our clients who own property in the primary residence will be up and down the West Coast are frustrated at the, that's the notion of having to wait for someone to get off of a plane to sell their house uh, because in their market, it's like, you know, multiple offers and highest and best. And, you know, everyone's looking at it because it came on the market. Whereas here, it's like, it just doesn't work that way. The same challenge is true on the buy side where they just, there's just, they can't find anything that speaks to them because it's also dated. And, right. you know, they're, they're, they're looking for, uh, you know, what you're phrasing as contemporary, which is an interesting choice of words. I'd love to hear just uh, – I'd love to hear you kind of flush that out a little bit. Like when you use the word contemporary, what, is, what does it mean for you? You mentioned, you know, a lot of glass and infinity-edge pools. and uh, but, but is there a distinction between contemporary and modern or are those there, sort of lumped together? No, really, you know, I think that the, the modern is um, really often assigned to more – um, of a period because we actually have um, modern where ice view contemporary is now. So modern, the challenges, like when we talk about mid-century, a lot of mid-century was considered, um, I mean, in, in its day, it was contemporary. And now architecturally, we kind of assign that more as modern um, where, and I think we're kind of coming through that a little bit. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, interesting things mid-century starting in the 50s. We got into it in the 70s and 80s, um, which actually is an area, which is the span that I like, uh, just because uh, people were a little more free to um, go to multiple levels. And that, to me, was really kind of like the first uh, of the wow architecture where people were doing things and it, the space itself was the wow and there was a little frivolity to it so it was about having the higher ceilings the walls of glass it wasn't anything that was needed to live in it was purely for the aesthetic and prior to that um things they we still did those things but it was in a much more formal way when i talk about like the ritz carlton that was reminiscent of what we used to have you know the big staircase the the heavy moldings and things like that and when we got into the um, the modern or the mid-century we started seeing things where, you know, you'd have the, the home that was, you know, ultimately was on seven or eight levels because you stepped down, you stepped up, you stepped down again. Um, the sunken living rooms, the sunken bars, the terraces that went on forever. And a lot of that was really just for the drama of the house where 
it wasn't so much about the the assembly of the rooms, but it was the assembly of the experience as you walked through the rooms, um, you know, foyers and things. You know what I mean? So it's like it was partly walking into a foyer where you don't know where you're going. Historically, you'd walk into a foyer in something more traditional, and you'd have a living room on one side and a dining room on the other, and a big, you know, or 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 the, you know, a drawing room on one side, and then you have a dining room ahead of you. Whereas when we get into some of the more um, modern architecture we created kind of we kind of mixed up the the flow and that in itself became a wow today what i see when i say contemporary um, a lot of it is technology driven and what i mean by that is we just couldn't we couldn't architect some of the things that we're now doing today uh, 20 years ago the use of glass was it was a little prohibitive to do glass in the sizes that we were talking about. It could certainly be done, but it was really only done in commercial spaces because it was just, it wasn't really um, available residentially at a price that you could afford. If you were building a, you know, a, six, right. a 60 story building in Manhattan, certainly you're going to have these really tall windows in your lobby because you're, you know, you're amortizing it over a 60 story building. But those things have come down. The, um, the use of stone which now we we can we can harvest stone, we can ship stone, and we can fabricate the stone so much easier than we could. Uh, where it used to be, we were much more limited, you know, in what we could do. And now we also have all of the synthetics, um, which are really very very good, and they're not even frowned on. Um, you know, a lot of these these new uh, synthetic stones that are beautiful. And they're translucent, so you can, you know, light them and things like that. So there's a lot of things that I think fall beautifully into these uh, brand new contemporary homes that are a result of the technology that we now have. And and the other thing is the um, the heating, cooling, and building systems, um, oh, right. which which are are much more efficient. Um, and right, you're not, it, you're not you have to like build a room for for the wood burning stove and which is the only way you're going to heat it. Right. Exactly. And and you know and, and you know the zone control that you need because you've got so much glass in one area, you've got a bathroom that doesn't have as much glass or you know things like that. And and the only way that you're going to make that livable is you're going to have zones. And that was another thing that was kind of cost prohibitive. Obviously commercial buildings had all those things, but that was just not something that was automatically put into residential buildings. And now it's it's completely um, expected that most of these homes, you're going to have six or seven zones of heating and cooling because you have to, because of the way they've been designed. And yet that would have been somewhat prohibitive, you know, a number of years ago. So some of it's sort of the, the logistics and the, the sort of guts and the, the building considerations are, are also, yeah, yeah. you know, forcing the design and the fashion out. It's interesting. I'm and, thinking and even, about... Oh, I'm going to say the last thing is even even within construction, um, what we're now able to do with steel, um, what we're able to do with concrete, um, a lot of those things, it was just cost prohibitive um, unless you were building a commercial structure. And now a lot of those same techniques are now put into residential because they're they're available. Anyway, sorry, more than you wanted no, to know. I'm a frustrated no, architect. Per it, it's perfect. It really is. I mean, it, it because there's more than one you know, there's more than one influence in forming these things. It's not just the front end of, of you know, the consumer's experience and, you know, retail and, and hospitality and, you know, social spaces or restaurants. It's also the, the is sort of the back end, you know, what what is really even possible from the, the architecture and the building standpoint that that's uh, influencing these trends. You know, I had a, uh, 
this is a story anecdotal, but I had a a client a few years ago who uh, was a year younger than me. So, you know, younger than our, you know, the sort of classic, uh, I guess, baby boomer demographic, uh, but, but had done very, very well and was looking at very high end homes. And he was, was almost exclusively looking at contemporary housing, you know, modern design, contemporary stuff. And he would go through and kind of, answer that question about what made something in his mind modern versus not or contemporary versus not. And he said, do you know why this, this fashion is so popular now? And I said, no, he said, because despite all this technology, despite everything that, that we've been given that supposedly made our lives easier, the truth is it's gotten harder. Everyone's got more information. They have more to think about. There's more input. There's more stuff going on. So people don't, when they come home, they don't want to see frill. They don't want to right. see unnecessary accentuations. They don't want to see – they just want to see a clean line and a simple thing, and they want to get, that's a table. This is a room. This is a – you know. And I thought that was such an interesting insight because, I, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily true, uh, but in his mind it, it certainly was. And and I, I see it sort of I, – I definitely think the – massive amount of input that the consumers have just stuff you know coming from your facebook feed and everywhere and it's like i i can relate to kind of wanting a little bit of a sanctimony and a and a little bit of a, a simplicity in my own life and then also i think the 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 changing in the degrees of formality right so like thinking about you know your comment about you know restaurants and hospitality thinking about my first experience ever at uh, having a meal at the Ritz Carlton, right? And it was very formal and very like, what are the rules? And, and they sort of seemingly showed up out of nowhere and knew exactly what you needed, but it was all like, you know, big silver plate covers and they would lift it and, you know, everything was white glove and it was all so ritualistic and, and very kind of like you were in a, like a soap bubble that was never broken and it was dead quiet and very uh, on point. And now that, that, first class kind of high end dining experience is radically different and it's and it you know it's focused on things like celebrity chefs and really you know uh, social environments that are like there'd be music playing and there's there's check out that light fixture and there's just it's just a totally different scene and i i wonder if if that's what you're talking about when you say like those kinds of influences that are impacting you know, home design and, and home buying trends. And it seems like it must be. A absolutely. I think you hit on a couple of things. So the first one is, and we've actually, uh, at our at our events, we've had some architects who have talked about the um, changes that their clients are looking for. And it was interesting. You're exactly right. They are looking for a bit of peace and simplicity. So coming home where things look peaceful. There's not clutter. Um, they're bar barraged with information coming at them all day long, whether it's social media, whether it's email, whether it's, um, you know, their, their cell phone is ringing all the time, all these different things. And when they come home, they just want to go somewhere where it's peaceful, where things are in its place. And it's interesting, um, I'm sitting here looking in my office right now where I have piles of crap. Um, however, people assume that I must live this way. And, and <laughs> When I, they're surprised when people see my apartment and they're like, wow, everything is in its place. And so I'm, I'm a victim and you probably are too. Um, 
when I go home at the end of the night, the only way that I can have any sort of calm is I need my house to be like very calm and everything in its place because all day long I'm way. doing all yeah. different things. The other yeah. thing is the the influence in your the you're right again with you know I think the Ritz Carlton again it was reminiscent. Um, we used to we didn't really know what luxury was going to be when we started all of a sudden uh, having more money to invest in restaurants, hotels, new home home developments. So what they did was they kind of said, well, this is what luxury used to be because yeah. Right. Again, we, like you know, post post World War, when you're right. in the 50s, 60s, I mean, that's when we, you know, if you, go, you don't have to go back that far and realize, you know, you know, many of our grandparents were living, you know, in places where the running water was kind of a new thing. So we've come a long way in a very short period of time, generationally. Um, now people have said, you know what? Um, when you go to a Ritz Carlton, into like finishing schools, you needed to know what fork to use. You needed, I don't want to do that. I made my money. I'm successful. Um, That's I'm right. smart. Yeah. Um, maybe I grew up not knowing which fork to use. So when I go into this, you know, wonderful celebrity chef, don't make me feel stupid. Make me feel comfortable. And being right. comfortable is not necessarily not necessarily having the white tablecloth. Not necessarily having that much, uh, you know. Uh, um, riffraff of china and silver and all that make it work for me so i have a great experience and i feel comfortable so i mean i i'm still kind of a stickler i think you know cloth napkin is something you've got to have and most places have kind of stuck with that but many of the best restaurants around the country have have gotten rid of their white tablecloths and they've gone to a whole new look it's much more contemporary um it's not the the prefix where you're you know going through six or seven courses or if it is if it is it's truly designed to be a tasting experience and it's done that way not just for the formality of it but for right, the, the ritual right. of it the ritual right. right um but i think and people want to recreate that in their homes so you know no longer is the the i mean the dining room is important to an extent, and I only say that because we have so much housing product that still has a dining room. So we're dealing with that. But what we've said is it's now the experience room. It's where you're going to celebrate major events. You you may not eat in there often, which many people don't. But when it comes to celebrating a, a special anniversary, a special birthday, um, a special holiday, um, those are the times when you're going to you're going to use that dining room. The rest of the time. Um, the home has to have a kitchen that's conducive to entertaining, to having great parties, uh, and all those sorts of things. And it's, I mean, in some homes, you can probably, you know, kind of axe the dining room in a renovation and turn it into a great room. But in many cases, uh, it's more, I'd say more often than not, it becomes an addition where the kitchen is now expanded to accommodate uh, today's lifestyle. And the right. dining room is kind of, the dining room is kind of like a holdover um, and it's just used for experiences. And everyone's involved in the process, right? Like you're, it's yep. the, even even the cooking is a is a sort of a social event instead of like you know mom doesn't want anyone in the kitchen because she doesn't want to know want you to know how much butter she's using or whatever it is. Like right, you, you, that's that's like a sort of a separate thing. And we will serve dinner when it's ready, and everyone will come into the dining room. It's very very different. Well, but and again, I think we, we, we kind of got the okay on that because we now have, you know, remember when we've had the first uh, restaurants that had a show kitchen. And so you had restaurants where the kitchen was now open. And that was right. very revolutionary. And that, that was a huge driver. Um, the other things are the indoor-outdoor entertaining where, you know, any restaurant that can 
has outdoor al fresco and it may have to have heaters it may have to have a you know a, a 10 foot 12 foot firewall whatever it is but people really like the ability to be indoor and outdoor which i'd say for you you know you have the best of all worlds because your climate is so wonderful you know oftentimes a lot of the square footage in properties in the islands are our exterior you know, and, right. and even yeah. you don't even have you don't even have you can even have separate uh, parts of the home where you're actually accessing it through exterior uh, hallways and lanai's and things like that. Uh, but no, definitely people have definitely changed how they want to entertain. And if you're inviting somebody over for dinner, um, the experience has to be as good or better than what you're going to get at. A restaurant out, outside. Right. Otherwise, let's right. go to the restaurant. I don't want to go to your home. That's boring. You know, if we're right. sitting down in a dining room around a table with, you know, china and napkins, that just that just sounds boring. <laughs> so we <laughs> so, got to spice so it up a little bit. So interesting. You know, I was I'm thinking about uh, sort of that that luxury of old and thinking. I was thinking about Downton Abbey and how you know that's kind of what they were trying to recreate is all the thrill and all of the formality and that frankly the, the sort of stuffiness of, of the upstairs but then I'm, I'm so struck by that show where I don't know if you felt this way but every time they they showed the the sort of actual kitchen yeah I always felt like it's how ironic it is that that right now the quality of what's in that kitchen you know that huge wood block cutting table that they had and like these great like huge copper pans and all of this stuff like that's actually more exciting to today's kind of consumer to today's home builder and home buyer than all of the all of the like stuffy uh you know huge carpets and giant portraits and like gold frill and of the upstairs right it's like it's right. fascinating that that quality is so sought after uh, because it's it, and it's that kind of like, to your point, it's it's comforting, it's it's user friendly, it's engaged. Uh, you know, there was well, a, 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 I'm totally jumping around, but there's just back to the hospitality thing. There was a uh, I in vetting uh, locations for the worst job. Uh, I won't name the hotel, but one of them was uh, it was a nice hotel that. I, I went to see and kind of see their conference spaces and understand how it might work if we had the event there and, you know, just go through it, like go through the exercise in my mind of, of what it might look like. And, you know, so I stayed in the hotel and then I, I came uh, downstairs to meet somebody and it was in the evening time and, or there was some sort of reception I was invited to or something. And there was a sign that said, uh, what did it say? I think it said uh, something like, appropriate evening wear required. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like exactly. I can't I can't bring, you know, the the top sort of luxury brokers uh, from the West Coast and put them in an environment where there's a sign telling them how to dress at night. Like that's just not it's just a complete non sequitur. And to me that was such a interesting departure. From, and I get yeah. why they do it, but it, it, it's such an interesting departure from what I'd call the kind of the new luxury of, you know, uh, especially on the West Coast, where you just can't really discriminate based on, you know, quote, appropriate wear, because right, right. you might have uh, pick pick a, I mean, not to, you know, profile, but you might have a... a someone in the entertainment industry or someone in who's a sports star or someone who's, you know, down the list that just 
you know, isn't necessarily wearing a suit or, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of prescribed resort uniform, but could probably write a check for the entire hotel if they wanted. So you, you just have to you kind of have to be mindful of that. It's a fascinating difference. I think you're on a, I mean, you're, you're definitely hitting on the change. I mean, one of the things that we used to say at some of our events, we'd say, you know, country club casual. Well, the problem is country clubs have redefined what that is because they realize if they want to have people continuing uh, to enjoy the the country club lifestyle, it's, you know, it's not going to be the formality that we saw in Caddyshack for those of us that remember that movie. And most people, it's almost a cult classic. Um, But today's, today's, clubs have also relaxed things because right. they want their members to feel comfortable and their members have the resources but they're going to they're going to dress how they want to dress um you know i think it's interesting you bring up downtown abbey and you talk about the kitchen um i i too i agree with you i mean that's probably one of the more interesting areas and probably you know the the big change we've seen is that you know people don't have live-in staff which was was very common with the wealthy years ago and really it's the advent of technology that's made that so much different as well as you know changing in um, career paths and things like that where now we see um you know people where there's two incomes and they may have a they may have a nanny to take care of the kids and they may have somebody who's living in um to help with things but there there's less live in there's more arrive and take you know be there during the day um, the thing that hasn't changed, though, is the attention to quality in the kitchen. And mm-hmm. I think what we saw in Downtown Abbey was, you know, all of those commercial and the big chopping blocks and all those sorts of things. People still want that because what the food that is laid out in front of them at the table, they still want the absolute highest quality, best uh, food that they can get and experience that. So now instead of, you know, instead of having the estate where it has the herb garden and it has the, the whole staff doing all this, now we go to Whole Foods, we right. pick it all up and we come right. home and we have our commercial, you know, wolf range where we can get the, you know, 45,000 BTUs so we can sear our tuna, you know, <laughs> right. instantaneously. Um, so, and, you know, so those, a lot of those things, it's interesting. The difference is that it used to be, it ha- we had to have an entire staff to do it. Now we actually kind of relish in the fact that we can pour a glass of wine, we can sear our tuna, which takes all of, you know, two to three minutes. In our copper pan, right. In our copper pan. And we have, uh, you know, the, the entire, you know, the, the microgreens and all that was prepared for us. And it's, and it's, all we do is we, you know, we take it out of the, um, the box or the, you know, out of the, the bag that we got it in at Whole Foods, and we're now serving this really wonderful meal. But there was somebody at Whole Foods that was going through and cleaning and cutting and preparing the microgreens. So there was somebody at Whole Foods that was slicing the 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 um, sashimi tuna uh, for us. Um, you know all these different right, things. Right. So the staff is still present, but we're like the finishing of it's it. It's just sort and, of externalized, right? Exactly. Right. And and yet, but we still want to kind of have that. Again, I call it the wow factor, but there's there's a little bit of a wow which says, you know what, these people these people cared. This meal is a special event. Um, so whether they had you know four people working in the home to do it, or whether they just pulled it off themselves, you know, um, a warming drawer is a wonderful thing to have when you're entertaining. And the best kept secret ever is 
you know, I don't know how it got in the warming drawer. All I know is how it comes out of the warming drawer. But who actually created it? <laughs> you know, who you know, or if you have a you know have a restaurant uh, delivering everything to you before. But at the end of the day, your your guest is experiencing a wonderful meal, um, and I think that's that's kind of the the piece that's still true and will probably never change. So basically, everything's been externalized, and we're things are really good, and we're all a little bit spoiled. <laughs> we, you know what? We, I will say, you know, in in certainly uh, the the job that we have at, at leading RE and luxury portfolio, we're we're exposed to a lot of what's going on around the world from a lifestyle standpoint, and we truly do. We're very very blessed uh, in America. When you know, we can we can dwell on all the negative things, but I think every day we should. You know, I'm I'm always impressed that I turn on my faucet and water comes out. Right. When you can, right. I mean, exactly. which I know sounds yeah. real, but it, when you consider no, like how many things could go wrong in the world. That's right. And not only that, when you consider our, our governments, and when you think of like city government workers, I'm in Chicago, so I may be a little, uh, I may be Bias. a little jaded. <laughs> but the fact that they keep the water running every day is astounding right. to me. Yeah, you know, I always it's always that, you know, it's always clean you know, and hot and all those things. We always take advantage, or not necessarily take advantage, but we we assume like when a system works, it just sort of fades into the background. And we're you know, like I always say, no one no one calls the county and says, hey, you know, good job picking up my trash. I'm so glad you guys do that. Thank you. Right. Like it just it's an assumption and it happens. But imagine if it didn't. <laughs> like that would not be Correct. good. You know, it would it would right. be really bad really quickly. And the same and for you know basics of running water and yeah. you know I mean in many parts of the world. Right. It's There's you know we, we could fix, but you know, and and I mean, and it, even it was interesting. Um, so I'll share this. The uh, one of the things we looked at in our study, which is not in the paper, so this is I don't I think we chose not to release this just because we had you know can only release so much. But in it, when we look at how happy people are, and again, this is just looking at the affluent, the. Uh, affluent in the U.S. are very happy. The affluent in Europe are happy, but they're as happy as the non-affluent in the United mm. States. Interesting. So if it gives it gives you a little perspective, those in the U.S. that are not affluent are as happy as the affluent in many other world in any right. other parts of the of the globe. Um, right. Because we do, we we, and I'm not not saying we take it for granted. Hopefully, we don't. Hopefully, we're thankful every day. But we really are very blessed when we look at. I mean, uh, our lifestyle in the U.S. compared to an affluent lifestyle, even in the U.K. and in London, um, square footage-wise, um, the size of our appliances, the size of our automobiles, having a yeah. garage. You know, I have friends from. London, and they were here in, in uh, the States for a while, and they're going back, and I thought it'd be wonderful. She said, oh, I'm going to miss my, you know, I, my big uh, SUV. I can buy groceries, and I bring them all home. I have a door lifter to just pull in the garage. You know, I have my big American refrigerator. I don't, and, and now I go back to Britain, and I have to go to the market multiple times a week. Um, right. You know, Stuff everything those, into a little gas-powered fridge. Exactly. Right. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, here she said, you know, basically I, I can go into my enormous shower and I can I can basically stay in there as long as I want because um, <laughs> I'm not running out of water. There we have these little tiny hot water heaters. So right. we really are. We're very blessed. And I think that's, you know, but that the the, the affluent lifestyle continues to um, drive lifestyle. And the way that things work in this country is that there's a trickle down. So things that, you know, were, were considered luxuries, 
you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, are now will become normal. Right. Become normal, and it and that and that becomes uh, happening quickly. So it it keeps driving the affluent to to look at new things, and and again, architecture and design, I think, is one of the things that they've kind of gravitated towards um, over the over the recent years, certainly since the crisis, because uh, we see those things changing dramatically. So we've this is now brings me back to that question of you know we've seen you you've had. You have a good fortune to see these cycles and, and to see these trends sort of come and go and like wax and wane. And you're now, uh, you, even to your comment about uh, the this proliferation of these contemporary homes, you know, up and down the West Coast, and how how there's almost a saturation point. What's what's next? I mean, do you have a sense of, or even the qualities that might define the next? Uh, you know, trend in architecture and design and, you know, quote, luxury or, or just high-end homes? Do you have a sense of, like, uh, where it's going? Well, I do think that the technology is going to make some major changes over the next few years. Um, you know, we've just kind of started connecting the smartphone to our home. Um, and a lot of that is done through proximity, where the smart home used to be something we had to learn. Um which was never a good idea because people didn't really need right. to come home and learn more about how their home was going to work. It was much easier to just turn the lights off and on. Today, with a smartphone, you now leave your home, and because you've got your, your, your iPhone or whatever phone you're using with you, it now knows you've left. So it can adjust the temperature. It can turn lights off, music off, put the shades down, all the things, and lock, even lock the doors because you've left, and you don't have to tell it anything. It knows. Right. So right. it learns your behavior. I mean, we've seen that with the Nest thermostat, which, you know, after about a week, it now knows what you do and how you live. And so it's it's not so much about um, programming things, but letting the technology become um, intuitive to what you do. Um, so I think there's a huge uh, learning um, or a huge advantage for us here. The other one is I don't think we've seen um, uh, appliances leverage this as much as they could. Um, I'm very excited about, and I've not done this yet, but the, the refrigerators that now have cameras. So when you're at the grocery store, you can now look in your refrigerator to remember what you have or what you don't have. Um, and some people will say, well, how could you possibly not know what you have or don't have in your refrigerator? And I would ascertain that I think with everything that's clouding our brains and will continue to cloud our brains because information isn't stopping, it's growing. Um, oh, do you know how, I, I mean, I have so many text messages from my wife that are basically like, either here's the shopping list or, honey, do we have X? You know, here's what exactly. we have. Yeah. Uh, so looking in and just like, how much milk do we have? Because, you know, and you and I are probably similar. I either have like way too much milk or I have no milk. Um, right. You know, and the, things like that. But the, the same thing is true for um, laundry, which is, you know, something that, um, you know, I think it's really brilliant that they've now come out with the, the tiny washing machine that fits underneath your washing machine in the drawer, which is really, I, I've talked to them. I said, well, who, who's buying this? They said, you know, it's designed for people that work out. And again, this goes to the whole, the U.S., we have such a, a, a cushioned lifestyle. But once you leave the gym and I go home, I don't want my right. sweaty clothes sitting around. So I just throw them in that thing. It's, it's, efficient it's quick a micro load it, right? it, a micro load so i can now wash my gym clothes daily with you know whatever i'm doing um and not only that my iphone's going to remind me that i did 
so that you know what I mean. So I don't forget about right. clothes that just sit in the in the laundry. Um, and again, I think all these things. As much as we say, well, we we have staff to do these things. I think there are a lot of things that technology will continue to do for us, so that staff, um, not obsolete, but we we move them into different areas. Because at the end of the day, uh, most people, you don't really love having staff around. You like to have things taken care of for you, but you'd like them to be as as invisible as possible. So I think that technology right. does that for us. In terms of the design and architecture, I think I think that contemporary is going to continue to evolve. I think that there are so many new things. We went through kind of a open, clean, white um, space. I think we will see more of an eclectic where we start to um, whether it's um, get some color and some yeah, get some more texture. color, but also uh, bringing in new finishes, uh, recycled finishes. Um, introducing, you know, almost like the, you know, in the um, renovation space where we're we're re- we're repurposing old product in our new homes that gives it more character. Because um, right. at the end of the day, people like things that feel a little authentic and feel like it's more um, true to the location. Um, you know, some of the um, um, walls that are made out of dirt, where it's uh, pounded dirt walls. Um, I think that's a really interesting concept, and it's and it's it hasn't quite made it into the mainstream yet. Um, but uh, pounded earth walls, um, right. where yep. you know those sorts of things, I think are really interesting. So, and that'll that'll lend a whole new look. That'll it'll take us away from the clean white all glass and bring in things that I think are, we're going to go. I think we'll be going a little more natural, more texture. You know, we uh, we leased uh, a BMW i3 and a little electric. BMW, mm-hmm. and we we keep it on Oahu in the airport because it's free parking, right? So it literally it costs half of what we were paying to, you know, Enterprise Rental Car and to Uber to have this car there. Um, and that car, I don't know if you've ever been inside of it, but it's it's like all hypoallergenic and recycled carpet and like recycled yep. bamboo deck, and and it's it's definitely got texture uh, and, and these different contrasts, but it's it's this. It is kind of what you're describing. It's this new environment that almost universally someone gets in and they're like, wow, what is this? And now it's, and it's, you, once you get it, this is what they did. It's like very, very cool. And the other thing that, that really gets me is that, I don't know if you're familiar with the brand, uh, I think it's Icon Trucks, and they're out of LA and they just basically rehab like old Ford Broncos and yep. the certain FJ Land Cruisers. But they, they're like, obsessed with the quality of like, you know, the the handle that you roll the window down with and the knob that you right. turn the radio on with. And they talk a lot about the functional obsolescence of technology. Like if you go get in a new Audi, you, there's so much there. Like, like to your point, you have to learn how to use it. And what's right. even more unfortunate about that is that chances are it's going to be obsolete in like 18 months because it's not – it, it's like literally it, it was left behind because they invented a new blah, blah, blah that does X, Y, and Z. And so I think there's a brilliance in sort of hardwiring the house to the smartphone because I think it's safe to say that, like, we're not – no one's putting down their smartphone. Um, you know, uh, so, like, it, it, the more that those things are hardwired instead of having this new, like – I mean, I, I was the first to say – I mean, not the first, but, like, I can tell you – as soon as I see like 
a house that's got an iPad with an app that you then have to like learn how to use and here's how you turn the lights on and here's how you do blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? This is going to be in the trash in 20 minutes because right. this is a classic example of complete functional obsolescence where now all the wiring and all the little pads that you built and all this, like in a year from now, it's going to be completely outdated and no one's going to want to use it and it's going to be this technological beast of the, in the house that like doesn't make any sense. It's way more intelligent to have it be run by the thing that's already in everybody's pocket. Now, that's yep. got some life, and that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Now, I'm, I also made a note, like, buy micro washer as soon as possible. <laughs> that's right. perfect for me, because I, I, would, I would use that almost every day. Well, and the, the other one that I think is great is the um, the new key sets where your your iPhone and I, I believe they're Bluetooth, so you're pretty you're in pretty good shape. I mean, if your if your network is going down, which I mean, again, we have to plan for all these things. Hopefully, you're not losing your internet access at your home, but um, it's it's similar to a hotel where you your iPhone now you just as as you get closer to your door, um, your front door unlocks because of Bluetooth, right. which is really right. easy like technology. Exactly. Um, so right. you don't have to carry a key with you. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, the, and the crazy things. But how that they, informs design. Right? Exactly. Like how, exactly. What does that translate to when it comes to, you know, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't have the answers to this, but all of these subtleties are going to change maybe where the front door is or whether there's a formal entry or, you know, any of that. Exactly. Because it's going to be so hardwired. Right. So it's a, I'm, I'm excited about. It. I mean, I lo, I love looking at the past, but I I also think that we will we will see a lot of retrofitting. I think when you talk about uh, you know the homes that we have today, um, I do think that will people will start getting more more and more creative from a design standpoint at how to repurpose homes as opposed to tear them down. Um, clearly, there's some that we we'd probably like to all see torn down, but I do think there's there'll be ways that people start repurposing things and, and do it in a really, really innovative and interesting way. And I bet, you know, some of that too might be driven by just the cost of construction. Like we're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, I don't see, it's not like you're going to scrape things and just completely start over, but we're going to have to get pretty proficient at how do you take the bones of, you know, X, Y, and Z house and, and bring it up to, you know, the kind of modern expectations of, of what we expect the house to be. And that could be a whole, you know, a whole new trend. Right. Well, and, you know, model. If you think about, you know, what, what, what we may have seen, you know, growing up, what anti- kind of redefining what antiques are. You know, antiques used to be from turn of the century, things like that. Um, and now, you know, 50 years ago, we start looking back and you say, well, you know, some of the things that were done in the 60s and 70s are now worth keeping and worth redoing. And oh, yeah, it's I almost bet. like that's an antique. And so right. people will, are proud. The first iPod could probably fetch a fair bit of money, right? The first, exactly. minute, the first iPhone 1 is going to be worth something. You know? Right, right. Interesting. So it's it's always, as, you know, as we evolve, we always people enjoy looking back and seeing things that were either quality or just really well done. And I think some of those things will live on. You know, other other things sure. will go by the wayside, but it is a very interesting time. Well, Paul, I'm so I'm so honored, and I, this is a great conversation. I know this is one of those that I'm going to be you know listening to over and over again, and hopefully we'll we'll 
continue this you know thread at Worthshop. I'm sure uh, if we and I think too you know we'll probably get into some other other arenas. I'm, I, I I'd love to pick your brain about just more of that kind of um, global context that you have and like the conversation about you know how the affluent or you know how happy they are and what's going on and I, mean, I think anything I always say Worthshop is sort of a how to think event so anything that informs um, you know the attendee just about the the greater context that that the the presenters and the panelists have be hugely valuable so we'll be sure to kind of um take it to a different different space when you're when you're on the panel but i'm 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 thrilled that you're coming and i'm psyched that we got to have this conversation and and thank you so much well thank you i'm excited about it there there it is it's a space where there's there's so much to talk about i'm i'm sure we'll continue our conversation thanks matt Aloha, Paul. Thank you, Luxor Portfolio. Thank you, Leading RE. And we'll, we'll call this a wrap until uh, we see Paul at Worth Shop on December 9th and 10th. Beautiful. Have okay. a good one.